Our world is marked by the unknown, despair, failure, and brokenness. But that isn't the end of our story. Into this brokenness, God has woven a thread of hope. This thread winds through the scriptures, through history, and through our very lives, leading us to Jesus. In Jesus, we have hope in the face of the unknown. In Jesus, we have hope in the face of despair. In Jesus, we have hope in the face of failure. In Jesus, we have hope in the face of brokenness. In Him, we have a reason to hope, a living hope, a hope that does not disappoint. In Jesus, we have hope. Opening up to Acts chapter, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 11, and our last study in our Advent series. Um, You know, I've really enjoyed the opportunities that this series has provided for some introspection. Um, I have seen myself in each one of these studies in more than one way, and I've just been able to examine my own life and say, Lord, whether it's the unknown, whether it's brokenness, whether it's failure, whatever we're looking at, I have seen how God has offered me hope. And I've seen it in my life in the past, and I've seen it currently, and I'm so thankful for the way that these studies have um, provided an opportunity to see my own life. And then to go from there and to be able to share them with someone else and say, look, if God can do this in my life, he can do it in yours. If he's offering me hope, he certainly is offering you hope. And I'm thankful to be able to pass some of these lessons along to others. I can't tell you how many times they've come up in conversation. And it's been such a, a wonderful series. You know, kind of as a lead into the study this morning, the other day I got sucked into a video on YouTube. Has this ever happened to you? You know, you're just scrolling on your phone, and all of a sudden you find yourself five, ten minutes later, what am, I, what am I doing? For some reason, YouTube had put a pair of cowboy boots being restored in my video feed. Now, I'm not the person who typically goes to YouTube to look for cowboy restoration videos, and so I just kind of rolled my eyes and scrolled past, but then if you would have looked five minutes later, there I was, just head down on my phone, totally engrossed in this restoration of these ridiculous cowboy boots. I said to myself, curse you algorithm for knowing me better than I know myself. It turns out that restoration videos are a thing on YouTube, and you can watch people restore anything from World War II era watches to old Nintendos. And it is surprisingly satisfying to see something that looks totally destroyed brought back to life. And I love those before and after pictures. They're the best. And it's so cool to watch the process unfold uh, as you watch. The attention to detail that the restorer has, the dedication to the goal. I was genuinely surprised by how much I enjoyed a pair of cowboy boots being restored. And this morning, as we're in Isaiah chapter 11, we see God's work of restoration in his people Israel. We see hope in the face of death as we continue that theme through our Advent series. Our passage is going to describe a time when Israel would look at itself and see only destruction everywhere it surveyed. Isaiah will describe the land as being burnt up, the people as being completely devoured, If the nation was once a flourishing tree, it's now been cut down to a stump, and it looks like all hope of life is completely gone. 
But it's against that dark backdrop and against that bleak picture that God brings a promise of restoration. It's a promise of life in the face of death. And so let's read through our passage together and see how the Lord will speak to us. We're going to read Isaiah uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. And then we're just going to jump over and quickly read the few verses that make up um, chapter 12. Excuse me, Isaiah 11 and then chapter 12. So Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a, a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He is the delight, or excuse me, his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. Verse 12, he shall set up a banner for the nations and assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And then listen to what it results in in verse, uh, chapter 12. In that day you will say, O oh Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day, you will say, praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it reveals the life that you want to show us in the face of death, the ability that you have to restore what seems completely lost and broken. Lord, I pray this morning as we're going through your word, not only would we understand it, but I pray specifically for those who who are surveying their life and they see only death, they see only brokenness. It's just seeped into the very core of who they are. There's no joy in their life as they just experience the loss and destruction. I pray this morning you would speak hope to them, not an artificial pumping up of their emotions, but the truth of your word stepping into their lives and meeting them right where they're at. 
Lord, each one of us, we want to come away changed this morning, but again, I pray specifically for those who need this word this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As we get started this morning, it's helpful to understand the historical context surrounding Isaiah chapter 11. We really won't grasp these verses until we have the full story, at least a better understanding of the story. At this point in its history, Israel is barreling towards destruction. Because for years and years, God has been sending prophets to his people, reminding them and calling them to turn away from their sin and turn back to their God. But over and over again, those prophets were rejected, their message ignored, their message ignored, and the people continued on in the way that they had been going. And now God is raising up prophets with a new message. Now the prophets are saying that destruction that we've been talking about is now here. God's attempts to correct his people have now come to this most painful of places. And in the chapters leading up to chapter 11, Isaiah spoke of the destruction God would bring on his people. And it is a bleak picture. I don't know if you can draw up in your mind those pictures of, of war from our history books. You see broken buildings. You see shattered people just stumbling through the wreckage in shock. It's just devastation as far as the eye can see. Even the land itself has been ravaged. You see profitable fields turned into battlefields, chewed up by the war that took place on them. You see forests stripped and burned, reduced to nothing but stumps. And Isaiah has been prompted by God to reveal this picture of upcoming judgment. The beautiful tree that was once the nation of Israel is going to be cut down and reduced to nothing but a stump. And Jeremiah, as he's speaking at the same time, would say those who are going to look at this upcoming destruction and the destroyed nation would shake their heads and hiss. Like, oh man, can you believe what has happened? What a shame. What destruction. What a loss. People would shake their heads when they saw what had happened to Israel. And so as we move into chapter 11, this is the backdrop. This is the picture that we should have in our minds. And this is where we need to pause for a moment and see ourselves in the text this morning. Because Isaiah is specifically addressing the nation of Israel, but we can also see ourselves in their situation. You know, if we're willing to pause for even a moment, each one of us could bring to mind areas in our lives that have been marked by death something that we would describe as a tree that's been cut down to a stump. Maybe like Israel, it's the result of some sin on our part. We sowed to the flesh, and we reap the natural consequences of that sin. Maybe lies that we told in a work environment have come back on us, and now that employment opportunity is gone. That door is closed. We've experienced that destruction. Or maybe there was some sin that marked our life before Jesus. And though he's forgiven us and transformed us, we still bear the marks and the, the scars of those sins in our relationships and the life that we now live. Maybe sin has caused death in our lives. But it's not only a death that's caused by sin that marks us. Sometimes it's the sin of others or it's just life's circumstances. Over the last few weeks, I've been hearing from a family and their different approaches to COVID-19 is tearing the family apart. 
Their approaches are destroying what had once been healthy, thriving, life-giving relationships. Lines are being drawn. Communication is being shut off. Death is entering that family dynamic because of something completely outside of their control. Or maybe it's the literal death of a family member or a friend that has brought figurative death into your heart and your mind. Their absence has left only, uh, you know, kind of a dark cloud. Every bit of joy seems to be gone from your life. And one way or another, we all experience death in our lives. In one arena or another, in varying degrees, it, it all marks us. And sometimes it makes us wonder, is there any hope in the face of this? Or is this how things will always be? Is this always the nature of things? Will there ever, will there ever be life in this darkness? And thankfully, that's where God steps in. The one who created life and spoke light into darkness can do the very same thing in our lives. He can restore and bring hope and life. And that process will be far better than any video on YouTube. He promises to do that very thing for Israel. Look down at verse 1. He says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That word stem there in the New King James is, is literally the word stump. It's been cut down to a stump, and God is saying from that, life is going to come. From this stump or stem, new life will come forward. This isn't the end of Israel's story. This wouldn't be their experience forever. What had once been cut down would now bring life once more. And this is more than just a broad promise of life, generally speaking. This is a promise of the Messiah, Jeremiah and Zechariah, they also, as they're prophesying, both use the title, the branch, to look forward to Jesus as Messiah. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, we see, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. From David, the son of Jesse, would come this king, the branch, the Messiah, and he will reign and prosper, and under his rule there will be justice and righteousness. This is God's ultimate answer for the death that pervades our world. Jesus is God's answer for death in all its forms, literal and figurative. Like Jesus would say in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. I'm life in the face of death. In Jesus, we find life. Now, it's not good practice when studying the Bible to immediately jump to personal application without first understanding the primary application of the text. And so let's be good Bible students and understand just exactly what the text is saying. And with that in place, then we can make application for our own lives. So its first and face value is that Isaiah has been given a message concerning the future. He's speaking a message of hope to those who are on the verge of destruction. He's giving with them something that they can take with them as they're taken away from their nation, this, this promise of hope that can't be taken from them. 
And this promise of God's hope and his restoration would stick with them all through the dark days of their captivity. They knew God wasn't finished with them yet. There was hope for them in the face of death. But this message wasn't for their return to captivity like we looked at last week with Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls. The promise that Isaiah is talking about looks past that. We already noted that it speaks of Jesus, but it's not speaking of his first coming, the celebration that we've just had on Friday with Christmas. Rather, this looks forward to his second coming, an event that's still future for us. And you can tell from the descriptions of the conditions under his rule, this is a yet future event, can't you? Isaiah is talking about a time period that we haven't seen, a time period that we call the millennium. It's a period of a thousand years when Jesus rules and reigns over planet earth, and he will be the ultimate king from David's line descending from Jesse. Life on planet earth will be much different than it is now. Righteousness will mark his governance. Nature itself is going to undergo these radical transformations so that natural enemies like the wolf and the lamb can exist next to each other. The knowledge of God is going to cover the whole earth like the waters cover the sea. God's people Israel will be once again gathered into the nation and along with the Gentiles, they'll come together to seek God. And it's going to be a glorious time. Make no mistake about it, earth has never seen a time period like this since the fall happened. There's never been this type of beauty, this type of peace, this type of prosperity since before the fall. And here's just a fun fact for you. When we sing that wonderful Christmas carol, Joy to the World, we're not actually talking about Jesus' first coming there in the manger. We're actually talking about this, his second coming. I mean, think of the lines, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Jesus came already, but how many of you have thorns in your garden? Have to pull out stuff in your front yard. That obviously didn't happen yet. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. That's what we've just read about here. These lines echo Isaiah chapter 11, not what we see in Matthew chapters 1 and Luke chapter 2. And so this amazing chapter, it speaks of Jesus' second coming. It's an incredible glimpse into the life that God will bring from what appeared to be complete and utter destruction of the nation of Israel. And as we look towards his work in the millennium, we can also see the work that he wants to do in our lives right now. And so note, first of all, that the promise of life that God is offering for his people, it comes through Jesus. First and foremost to note, the life that God promises in the face of death, it comes through Jesus. And we mentioned that already. But we need to go back to this point as a, as a as we begin to make personal application, as we look for life in our lives, it's only found in Jesus. It's only as we turn to Jesus and bring him into our lives and the situations that make them up that we find life. Apart from Jesus, the Bible says that each one of us is dead because of trespasses and sins. Oh, not physically. You couldn't be here if you were dead physically. Spiritually, we're dead. We're not alive to God. That part of us is dead because of trespass and sin. Each one of us has sinned in the past, and today we continue to fall short of God's glory. And that sin, our sin, has the natural result of death. This morning, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus... 
you are spiritually dead. Now, I don't mean that as an attack on who you are. It's not meant to single you out from the crowd. It's just the truth. All of us, not just you, but all of us, apart from Christ, are dead in sin. And that's why we turn to him, acknowledging our need for life, acknowledging our need for forgiveness for a Savior. And the Bible promises that as we do, God hears us. Not just collectively, he hears you specifically. Where there was once spiritual death, he now brings you to life. Old and New Testaments alike promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning, even while I'm speaking, you can call on Jesus. And he will bring life into your life. Where you might now be marked by spiritual death, he'll bring life to that. You step into a quality of life that you can't find apart from him. The world is alive to you now through Jesus in a way that you didn't even realize was dead before. He transforms us completely. Even while we're talking this morning, you can call out to him if you've not already. Jesus radically transforms, and it's only in him that we find life. We certainly see that in our text, don't we? We read of the radical transformations that Jesus is going to bring to this world. Now, part of what makes Jesus so different from anything else in the world around us is the work of the Holy Spirit in and alongside him. And in verse 2, we have the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit seen in the life of Jesus. We read that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit and his presence would mark the life of Jesus. I mean, just think about it from the very beginning. It was the Holy Spirit who would miraculously allow Mary, a virgin, to be with child. When Jesus was baptized in Luke chapter 3, launching his public ministry, we read that the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. Jesus was led by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus will quote from Isaiah 61 saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The life and work of Jesus was and is marked by the Holy Spirit. And gang, this is true when he works in our lives as well. When we turn to Jesus and bring him into our lives, our lives will be marked by the Holy Spirit as well. The work that Jesus does in our lives is in accompaniment and through the Holy Spirit. And look at this description of the Spirit's work. We read that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. We see first that he is the Spirit of the Lord. Your Bible will probably have the word Lord in capital letters, meaning that the original Hebrew language is actually using the name of God, Yahweh. Now, there are a lot of spirits in this world, aren't they? But as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, he more and more aligns us with the heart and nature of God the Father, moving us out of conformity with this world and moving us closer to the image God created us to bear. Our lives are less and less marked by the things that mark this world, its pursuits and its pleasures, and more in line with our Heavenly Father. Our lives are brought closer to God the Father, and that will inevitably result in life. He's the Spirit of the Lord. 
Secondly, we see the presence of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit are marked by wisdom and understanding. We can see the wisdom of God at work in the life of Jesus, can't we? I mean, think of how many times people try to trap him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? What's the greatest commandment? What will this woman do when she's in heaven? Who will be her husband? All these different questions meant to trap Jesus, meant to argue some deep theological point. How many angels can dance on the pin of a needle? And each time Jesus had the answer that cut right to the heart of the issue. Not only could he address the surface question, but he could see right to the root of the matter. In all things, Jesus was and is wise. And in all things, he has understanding. He has the ability to perceive things, not just the details on the surface, but to see what it all means. When I think of this word understanding, I think of Sherlock and Watson. They both walk into a room, right? But as Watson's standing around kind of scratching his head, Sherlock has pieced the whole thing together in his mind. You could see it explode and unfold and come together in slow motion. We've all seen it happen. Watson saw the details, the same things that Sherlock saw, but Sherlock had understanding to know what had taken place. And if Sherlock can do it, Jesus the more so. He's wise. Our Savior has understanding. And the more we draw close to him, the more these things mark our lives. And this brings life to us. They can't help but bring life as we draw near to him. In contrast, the Proverbs tell us that there's a way that seems right to a man, seems wise to us, but the end is the way of death. As you and I follow our own wisdom it continually results in death, no matter how smart we might think we are. But when we seek Jesus and decide to follow him, the natural result of that is life. And this is especially important and especially difficult when God's instructions seem foolish to us or contrary to what we would naturally want to do. Because that's when our wisdom is directly at odds with God's wisdom. They're not roughly moving the same direction. They're moving in completely opposite directions. And in that moment, it is especially important that we choose the wisdom and will of God. And I know it's hard. That is really, really hard. When we, everything in us says, this is the wise thing to do. It makes sense. This is the thing that's going to protect me from harm. This is the thing that's going to benefit me the most. God's telling me this, but that's going to end in disaster. I can tell you. It's hard when it seems like that. I face this in my life too. There are plenty of times when I think it's best to do one thing, but God's clearly saying to do another And those are difficult decisions, but it's so important that we choose obedience in those moments. We can't let obedience be something we only do when it makes sense to us. I'm going to say that again just so I can hear it. I'm sure you guys got that, but I need to hear that again. We can't let obedience be something that we only do when it makes sense to us. I'm only going to obey God if I can figure it all out, if I can see why his way is better than mine. Obedience is important, especially when we can't figure it out, especially when it seems contrary to what we would naturally choose 
Because the way that seems good to a man leads to death, but the way that we, as we follow God, it leads to life. If you want to see life in the place of death in this upcoming year, follow the wisdom and understanding of God, even and especially when it doesn't make sense to you. Follow His will and His ways above your own. The Spirit of God is marked by wisdom and understanding. Next, we see that the presence of Jesus and the work of the Spirit are marked by counsel and, and might. It makes sense that Jesus is our perfect counselor, given the wisdom and understanding that he has. In Isaiah chapter 9, of course, we read that Jesus will be our wonderful counselor. And I'm so thankful for the wisdom and understanding of God that he has these things and that they're not kept secret from us. We have in our hands almost 1,200 chapters of God's wisdom and understanding and counsel. It's here for us so that we can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has literally written out his wisdom and understanding for us. His counsel is there if we'll turn to it. But not only do we have the written word of God, we also have the living spirit of God in our lives. And he wants to work with us on a day-to-day basis, leading us and directing us, helping us understand how to apply the Word of God, what it means and how it's lived out in our situation. No matter how it comes, God promises that if we ask him for wisdom, he will answer. God wants to be our counselor. He wants to be your counselor. And if we want his life, we desperately need his counsel. Now, thankfully, we see that the counsel of God here in this little couplet is paired with the might of God. God is limitless in power, and he is able to supply that to our lives. And this is something that I wish I could do. There are so many times when I'm having a conversation with someone, and I wish I could give them strength for their situation. Right now, my brother is walking through some difficult health stuff, and my heart breaks for what he's walking through. I I feel the weight of his circumstances. I see how hard the road is in front of him, but I can't give him any of my strength to walk through that. As much as my heart breaks for him and wishes I could give him something to make his life easier, I can't actually give him whatever strength I might have. You ever find yourself in that situation? That frustrating sense of being powerless? I wish I could give you some of my strength. Your heart breaks for a neighbor or a coworker or a family member, and you wish there was some way that you could lend them some fraction of your strength, but you can't. You can be there for them. You can try to come alongside them in meaningful ways, but you can't give them any of your strength. But God is not limited like we are. He is actually able to give us strength. I don't know how. I desperately wish I understood the mechanics of how God is able to give us strength, not just figuratively, not just thoughts and prayers are with you, but literally able to lend us strength that we don't have apart from him. Later in Isaiah, we read this incredible promise It's probably familiar to you. Isaiah says in chapter 40, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. 
His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. God is able to do the thing we desperately wish we could do. He is able to give power to the weak. He increases the strength of those who have no might. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promised that we would receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what difficult road you're walking as the year is about to turn the calendar. But I know that God is able to strengthen you by his Holy Spirit in meaningful and literal ways. God wants to provide you with strength. Strength to walk the difficult road that's in front of you. Strength to carry something that seems too difficult for you. Strength to endure something that seems to crush you. God wants to provide that strength. Or maybe it's not just to walk a difficult road. Maybe it's the strength needed to make a difficult decision. Remember, we've just talked about how sometimes the wisdom and counsel of God seems so contrary to us, and it just doesn't seem within us to choose that. It seems too hard to choose God's will and God's way. We know what his word says. We know what he's telling us to do, but it seems so difficult to choose that path. And in that moment, God can give you strength to choose obedience, to choose to walk with him, to choose to do the thing that seems difficult. Again, referencing the book of Acts, remember the disciples were given this uh, this impossible task. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. There's just a few of you, and you guys can transform the whole world. No biggie, right? I mean, there's probably about as many of them as there are of us here this morning. Imagine if Jesus popped in and said, hey, I want you guys to transform the whole world. I'll be back in a bit. We think, that's a, that's a monumental task. How are we going to do that? That's an impossible thing. There's no way we have the strength and power to do that. But Jesus said, look, where I give my commandment, I also bring my power. And he says, do this in the power that I give you by the Holy Spirit. God set this task before them, and then he promised he would supply the power they needed to accomplish that task. We all need the power that God wants to provide for us. None of us are sufficient on our own. And thankfully, he wants to supply that power, and when he does, it brings life. The power of God brings life into our lives. Now, the final pair of characteristics here in verse 2 our knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The presence of Jesus and the work of the Spirit are marked by knowledge and the fear of God. We've touched on these ideas of wisdom, understanding, counsel. Knowledge kind of rounds out this idea and this part of Jesus' work in our lives. Who, of course, doesn't need this, right? No matter what I've experienced in life, my experience has been that I've always got questions. There's never something in parenting that you don't say, what am I going to do now? They've entered into this new phase, and I am scratching my head once again. What do I do as a parent? Maybe you're now out of that parent stage, and now your parents are stepping into that stage. What do we do now? You're grown, you're mature, you, you should have it all figured out, but we realize there's always a stage in life where we need the wisdom and knowledge of God. If I'm going to experience 
his life in mine. I need these things from him. And this is especially true if I want to see life where there's currently death. Life is not going to come by my wisdom or yours. And as I submit myself to that wisdom, it demonstrates a fear of the Lord. When we give place to Jesus in our lives and allow the Spirit to work in us, it naturally brings about a fear of the Lord. Now, this isn't a bad thing. In fact, this is a very, very good thing to fear God. To fear God means to reverence Him, to hold Him in high esteem, to respect Him, to be in awe of Him. But it also means to literally be afraid of Him. Because God is good, and because God is love, that fear thankfully doesn't drive us away from Him. Rather, that fear, genuine as it is, is simply the response of the finite to the infinite. God is worthy of our fear and all the different meanings of that word. But thankfully, rather than pushing us away from him, he calls us to come near. That fear doesn't drive us away. It draws us close. And the fear of the Lord, it brings a health to our lives. It puts things in order and it puts things in perspective. You know, it used to be a compliment to call someone a God-fearing individual. And wouldn't it be great if people would use that term to describe us? However else they might describe us, wouldn't it be wonderful if they said, that's a God-fearing individual? These things, they all bring about life in our lives. These things that we see here, this work of the Spirit and the presence of Jesus, they need to be in our life if we're going to experience the restoration that God wants to bring. We need the presence of Jesus and the work of the Spirit if we're going to see life in the face of death. Now, we'll just quickly skim through the rest of the chapter as we kind of want to land in chapter 12. As we keep moving through Isaiah 11, in verses 3 through 5, we see the righteous rule of Jesus. We see that righteousness will mark his reign on planet Earth in the future, and it can mark his reign in our lives right now. We see there in verses 3 through 5 that justice is safe with him. He walks in a fear of the Father so he can't be bought. He has perfect knowledge and wisdom so you can't hide the truth from him or fool him with a lie. The poor won't be ground up by the system and the meek won't be overshadowed by the bold. Wickedness won't become law and practice under Jesus' rule and reign. And wouldn't it be good to have such a king? Such a ruler sadly doesn't exist on planet Earth right now. But Jesus can reign in each one of our hearts. We don't see this type of rule from Sacramento or Washington or sadly even in our own homes at times, but Jesus can be our righteous and faithful king. We can put ourselves under his rule right now, not waiting for the future millennium. And as we do, we get to the radical transformation we see uh, in the following verses. This radical transformation that will mark the millennium and Jesus' rule on earth. Now, the first way to understand verses 6 following this passage where the wolf is lying down with the lamb is to take them simply at face value. When Jesus comes to earth a second time, he will radically change the world as we know it now. These verses aren't allegorical or figurative. These transformations will literally take place. But there's also a way that we can apply these things to our lives. 
Because in each one of these pairings, whether it's the wolf and the lamb, the leopard or the young goat, these different types of pairings, we see a relationship that's being transformed. Where there was once violence and death, there's now peace, reconciliation, if you will. You know, death in relationships is a hard and painful thing. There's just no getting around it. When a relationship that had once been healthy and and thriving is now marked by death, a sadness just seeps into the very core of who we are. I mean, just pervades us. It's a, a deep sadness. But we see here, Jesus wants to bring restoration and reconciliation. He wants to bring what was dead back to life. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that you just add Jesus and every relationship will suddenly become hunky-dory and everything will be good. This is not a, a magic wand that we just kind of wave at some broken relationship. But... If both parties in a broken relationship are willing to bring Jesus into the equation and let the Holy Spirit work, what was once dead can be and will be brought back to life. I've seen marriages restored, God healing the wounds that were caused by adultery. I've seen broken friendships that were marked by years of silence and distance restored and a now healthy thing in place. Jesus is in the business of reconciliation. He wants to restore fellowship between us and the Father, and he wants to restore fellowship that's broken between us. It may not be an easy process, and there may be a lot of ground to cover, but no relationship is so dead that Jesus can't do the miraculous in willing hearts. We even see this in verses 9 and 10 when we see both Jew and Gentile seeking God, waving his banner over their lives. Paul will describe the line between Jew and Gentile as this insurmountable wall, something that can't be broken down, and yet here God has done that very thing. Jesus is able to unite even Jew and Gentile in a common purpose and pursuit. And so when Jesus is present and the Spirit is at work, Life comes from death to the glory of God the Father. And that's the natural progression from chapter 11 into chapter 12. Chapter 11 is all about the hope that we have in the face of death. And chapter 12 is the appropriate response to that life. Remember verse 5 says, Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Sing to God for the work that he's done. I hope you know that life. I hope that you're giving place to Jesus to bring that life as you follow him. Sometimes that's a waiting process, but even in that waiting, I hope that you find fellowship and hope with him as he begins that work of restoration and bringing life. Isn't it amazing to see the life God can bring where there had once been death? If it's beautiful to see a, a pair of cowboy boots restored, how much more so when he brings life and restoration and relationships and the life around us? The before and after pictures that God works in a human life are so much better than anything you'll find on the internet. 
It's so cool to see something restored with someone who has this dedication to the process and attention to detail, but that's even more so the way that God works in us. When God begins that work in you, he promises to complete it until the day of Jesus, never giving up on you, always working to bring life and restoration. His attention to detail is infinite, finding even the smallest things in our life that need to be restored. And when God works in us, it doesn't result in just a few likes on a YouTube page. We see here in chapter 12, it results in eternal praise to his name. God wants to bring life where there's death currently. And when he does, we too will sing to God, praising him for the excellent things that he's done in our lives. This morning, we're going to wrap up in song, but we're also going to wrap up in communion. And uh, as, as Grayson and Rachel come back up to lead us in a last song, as they're leading us, if you haven't grabbed the communion elements yet, they're out in the lobby and you can grab those. But what better way to remember the life that God wants to bring from death, Right? No better picture of life from death than Jesus in the grave and then literally raising to life to bring life to us. And so let's close in worship. If you haven't already, grab the communion elements and we'll take those together. Would you stand with me and pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that you are in the business of bringing life. Whether it's Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and the institution of life, or whether it's the chapters that make up our day-to-day, you want to bring life. Lord, all around us we see death, death as a result of our own choices, death a result of just a fallen world, death as a result of choices of others around us, outside of our control. But you don't want to leave us without hope, and in the face of those things, you want to bring life. Lord, help us choose you and position ourselves before you so that you can bring that life to follow you, to ask Jesus to come into our lives and work powerfully by the Holy Spirit to transform and restore in every way that you're wanting to, leaving no detail untouched by that process of restoration that you bring, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name.